From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. The journey from the podcast to the book Hidden Mercy was a long process of going into the stories that we were able to capture in Plague and picking out the ones that had spoken particularly uh, powerfully to listeners and examining how what can we do with the book? How can we expand these stories? Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Today we're happy to welcome back Michael O'Loughlin, an award-winning journalist and national correspondent for America Media. He's the host of the podcast Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. Longtime listeners will remember that we spoke to him about that podcast in January of 2020 in our episode, The Complex History of AIDS and the Catholic Church. O'Loughlin was national reporter for the Boston Globe, and he's written for The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Foreign Policy, National Catholic Reporter, and The Advocate. He's been featured on ABC, CBS, MSNBC, and NPR. He lives here in Chicago, where we are recording this show. He's the author of the recent book Hidden Mercies, AIDS, Catholics, and the Untold Stories of Compassion in the Face of Fear, which is an expansion of the Plague podcast. Michael O'Loughlin, welcome back to Things Not Seen. Thanks, David. Thanks for inviting me back. Well, we spoke in 2020 about your podcast, which was powerful and moving, and it literally featured the voices and the stories of people who had been on the front lines of the AIDS crisis in the 80s and had really borne the brunt of some of the actions of the Catholic Church. But now this has become this new project, this book, Hidden Mercies, and that's really where I'd like to start. What was it like moving those audio stories and taking those as a sort of seed kernel, as a kind of basis, and moving them into print form? Talk to me about that process. The journey from the podcast to the book, Hidden Mercy, was a long process of going into the stories that we were able to capture in Plague And picking out the ones that had spoken particularly uh, powerfully to listeners and examining what can we do with the book? How can we expand these stories? And I think uh, people who listen to the podcast and then have read Hidden Mercy will recognize many of the characters, like you said. But it's also expanded quite a bit into uh, some more background about the context in which the people we profile were working, administering additional stories about Catholics who were maybe unsure of their place in the church and how they might go about ministering to people with HIV and AIDS, and even individuals who left the church and protested against it. It provides, I think, an opportunity to examine some of the nuances in a more concrete way, in a longer way. And I have heard from people who listened to the podcast and then read the book, and they were excited to see familiar names and stories, but then also moved by the additional stories that we weren't able to include in the podcast. Well, and and so 
this was exactly my experience because listening to that podcast series from a couple of years ago and then diving into this book, particularly when you were telling some stories about Chicago and some of the parishes and some of the priests that were operating here in Chicago in the 80s and early 90s, my eyes were opened about some things. And there were some things that also similarly kind of made my blood boil about some of the the ways in which the church was indifferent or actively hostile towards people who were homosexual, gay, lesbian. The, the, the names have changed over the decades in terms of how the church referred to them, but also the indifference towards those who were suffering from HIV and AIDS. And so as you were beginning to dive back into these deeper stories, particularly those, even some that you mention in the book Hidden Mercy that happened right there in your own neighborhood or around the corner in your own parish, what was it like finding these stories, not just on a national scale or in a city like New York, but literally in your backyard? It's a good question. I was really surprised to learn that the parish that my husband and I attend in Chicago in Lincoln Park, that it had this rich history of responding to the HIV and AIDS crisis. For a little background, Chicago was considered to be a second wave city when it came to HIV and AIDS. So the HIV crisis really ramped up beginning in the early to mid-1980s in big coastal cities that had large gay populations. People think of New York and San Francisco. And there was this sense here in the Midwest that this crisis would be coming. It was a little slower to arrive and that we could learn from a lesson happening in these cities on the coasts. And that proved to be correct. Chicago, by the mid to late 1980s, was hit very hard by HIV. There's a statistic in the book where examining some data about HIV diagnoses in neighborhoods with high gay populations. And it was something about one in 300 residents were diagnosed with HIV, which is just a huge number. And this church that I attend is located near one of these areas uh, known as Boys Town. And it hadn't occurred to me that because of where the church's location was, there probably was some kind of history when it came to HIV and AIDS. But it should have, especially as I was years into this research. And there's a chapter in the book that goes into how this parish became a gay-friendly Catholic church because it was an intentional process that a pastor beginning in the late 1980s undertook. He wanted to serve the community, and the community at that time was a large LGBT population. It turns out that pastor himself was leading something of a double life. He was a committed Catholic priest, which meant he was called to a life of celibacy, but he was also uh, in a relationship with another man and ended contracting HIV and dying from AIDS. And I go into the story through interviews with some of his friends, some of his family, how he chose at the end of his life to make his own HIV status known. He asked his friend, another priest who would be preaching at his funeral to make sure that people understood he died from age-related complications. And it was a very brave decision on his part because it might be easy to forget a diagnosis of HIV carried with it huge amounts of shame and stigma. I remember one poll from the 1980s showed that 43% of Americans thought that HIV might be a punishment from God for people leading a, uh, quote, immoral lifestyle. So there was a lot of shame and stigma associated with HIV generally, but especially for a Catholic priest who was not only called to a life of celibacy, but was part of an institution that condemned homosexuality. But this pastor nonetheless decided that he could perform one final act of solidarity with people suffering in silence by going public with his illness. And the priest who was preaching at his funeral wanted to honor his wishes and included a note in the homily that his uh, friend had been sick with AIDS. 
Some church leaders had pushed back and asked him to reconsider that because there was such a taboo around the subject. This is in 1991. Ultimately, he went ahead and preached that. And it actually appeared in uh, this pastor's uh, obituary in the Chicago Tribune that he died from AIDS. And it was really a moving example of a priest who engaged in HIV and AIDS ministry wasn't too public about his own sexual orientation or even HIV status during his life, but used this opportunity of his death to show solidarity with the marginalized community. And that's just one story. There's others about Chicago in the book, and many in the book exhibit a similar kind of quiet mercy that really remained hidden until they came out in the book. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Michael J. O'Loughlin. And we're talking today about his book, Hidden Mercy, AIDS, Catholics, and the Untold Stories of Compassion in the Face of Fear. Listeners will remember that we spoke with Mike O'Loughlin a couple of years ago about his podcast, Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church, uh, which he produced in cooperation with America Media. One of the things that really came out for me in your book, Hidden Mercy, and that I, I admit I didn't quite catch so much in the podcast, but maybe I missed it was this kind of notion of the open secret. And you were mentioning just a moment ago that this priest in Chicago died of AIDS and wanted that to be communicated in his parish and at his funeral and and in his obituary. But you also mentioned that there were sort of pictures of this priest on a trip out west, dressed in cowboy clothes and, and standing with another man. And you mentioned another priest looking at this picture and saying, wow, I should have known and and to me, that really rang out to me because what I realized in that moment is that homosexuality and identity of being gay, these are things that are both closeted, they're hidden, but also they're things that are known and unknown in social spaces among people that work together and all of those sorts of things. And so I'm wondering about the kind of politics of knowing in the Catholic Church. What does it mean? What did it mean at this time for someone to to identify as homosexual, to identify as gay? and yet be visibly, invisibly in those spaces as a priest. So when Father Jim Noon, who's the pastor I was talking about uh, in Chicago, who went public with his AIDS diagnosis, when he died, he actually hadn't come out publicly. And I think that was a good example of the fraught nature of the phenomenon of gay men in the priesthood. So he was willing to go public with his true cause of death, which was from age-related complications, but he didn't come out publicly, at least not beyond his immediate circle of family and friends. And I think that helps to capture just how difficult it was for gay men who had joined the priesthood, especially in the 1980s. I was sort of disappointed, but not surprised to learn just how difficult it was for gay men in the priesthood in the 1980s in the Catholic Church. There was this phenomenon of Vatican officials really cracking down on the growing gay rights movement within the church. There were groups like Dignity, which fought for the rights of gay and lesbian people in the Catholic Church. Uh, You had the Vatican saying no, because they were challenging church teaching. They were not really part of the church anymore. And the Vatican actually kicked them out of church properties. They were no longer allowed to use Catholic spaces for worship or for meetings. At the same time, you had Catholic leaders throughout the United States really pushing back hard against gay civil rights bills. Uh, They were being proposed all over the country. It's hard to imagine now, but even New York City didn't have a comprehensive gay civil rights bills well into the 1980s. And one reason for that was because you had bishops like Cardinal John O'Connor using his political influence to push back against legislation. 
the same thing played out in places like San Francisco, Minneapolis, even here in Chicago. So you have this sort of dual cracking down on both gay Catholics within the church and also on the gay population in a broader community. So at the same time, there was a large number of gay Catholic priests. It was a taboo topic. Of course, there's no survey about asking questions about a priest's sexuality. The church wasn't really interested in collecting that data, and there was really no other way to do it. So it's a lot of anecdotal evidence, but there were investigations into the number of deaths from age-related complications in the priesthood. It did seem to be a little bit higher than the general population, which led some researchers to conclude that there was a higher per capita percentage of gay men in the priesthood than the general population. So there was this something about the priesthood was attracting gay men to the seminaries. And you're right. It was this don't ask, don't tell policy for a while where gay men were admitted, they were trained in seminary, they were made priests, but they couldn't really talk about it. And that often meant that they were isolated, which could lead to some of the challenges that come from a closeted environment, sort of uh, blackmail, extortion, fear, shame, and it created some unhealthy environment. So my heart broke for some of these guys who I think were trying to do the right thing, but who were caught up in this system that really valued secrecy over and healthy examination of one's sexuality. And during HIV and AIDS, that could literally be deadly because they weren't receiving the information they needed about how to protect themselves. They were engaging in high-risk behavior, and it was a, a really heartbreaking situation for so many of them. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Michael O'Loughlin. He's an award-winning journalist and the national correspondent for America Media. He's the host of the podcast Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. Longtime listeners to the show will recall that we spoke with him about that podcast in January of 2020 in an episode entitled The Complex History of AIDS in the Catholic Church. He has been a national reporter for the Boston Globe prior to coming to America Magazine, and he's written for The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Foreign Policy, National Catholic Reporter, and The Advocate. His work has been featured on ABC, CBS, MSNBC, and NPR. Today we're talking about his recent book, Hidden Mercy, AIDS, Catholics, and the Untold Stories of Compassion in the Face of Fear. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Michael O'Loughlin. He's an award-winning journalist and the national correspondent for America Media. He's the host of the podcast Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS in the Catholic Church. Longtime listeners will remember that we spoke with O'Loughlin about that show in January of 2020. Today we're talking about his recent book, Hidden Mercy, AIDS, Catholics, and the Untold Stories of Compassion in the Face of Fear. Before the break, you were talking about a story that appears in your book, Hidden Mercy, about Father Jim Noon 
who was a priest in Chicago who died of AIDS. And that was reported both in his obituary and at his funeral. It was made public that he died of AIDS. But you said something that was very interesting to me. You said he he made it public that he died of AIDS, but not that he was gay. So he stayed in the closet, except to those that he had come out to publicly, even though the disclosure of how he died was attached at that time in the 1980s to the stigma, the sort of notion of being gay and homosexuality. When you said that, it made me think of another portion of your book where you talk about Father Brian Massingale from Fordham University, and how Father Massingale, who has come out as a gay priest, for a long time hid behind the fact that he's also African-American. And he said, nobody noticed whether or not I was gay because all that they saw was I was black. And within the church, that was an anomaly enough. And I'd love for you to talk to my listeners a little bit about this kind of, this nature of identity that you're getting at here in your book, Hidden Mercy, about how Folks like Father Noon and Father Massingale sort of use disclosure and non-disclosure to protect themselves as they maneuver as priests. I think it's a challenging situation for a gay man to find himself, assuming that there is an authentic call to the priesthood and a desire to serve uh, in ministry, while knowing that you are entering an institution that condemns homosexuality as sinful that officially anyway prohibits gay men from the priesthood, knowing that you might be called on to defend a position that you don't agree with. And it can create a a tension uh, from what I've heard through this reporting. It can create a tension within an individual's heart. How do I do this job and be true to myself? Now, I think for many Catholic priests, uh, they simply feel like they don't need to come out publicly because There's a call to celibacy, and if they're living up to that, then there's no need to talk about their sexuality. Others, uh, Father Massengale in the book, another character in the book, Father William Hart McNichols, have said no, that in order to minister effectively and with integrity, they need people to know who they are. And part of that is talking about their sexual orientation. And I, I, I think that there are different ways and different approaches to go about that. If people read Hidden Mercy, they'll see different models of how LGBT people remain in the Catholic Church and among them priests who navigate this identity issue in different ways. Now, certainly on the LGBT question, people like Father Massengale and Father McNichols who have come out publicly and perhaps have endured some setbacks as a result, nonetheless feel more free to engage in ministry. Once they come out, they say that other people have less power over them. And as a gay Catholic myself, I've experienced that as well. I remember earlier in my career, and I write about this uh, in Hidden Mercy a bit, I was afraid of covering these issues, even though they were very much in the news, because I worried that readers would somehow make the connection that I was at least interested in them a little bit because of my own search for what it meant to be a gay person in the Catholic Church trying to make that work. But as I came out and became more comfortable with it, I realized that there wasn't this power and control exerted over me by other people because I had put the secret out there myself. So I I do understand that when you're in the priesthood, there are certain individuals or systems with control over what you can and can't say. But for some priests who have made the decision to come out, they told me that there is the sense of freedom that comes along with it. Something that you said just a moment ago stuck with me. And when you were talking about sort of Father Massengale and other priests who have made the decision that coming to their ministry with their whole selves was an important part of how they thought about being a priest. When you said that, it made me think of a a Jesuit idea, the idea of cura personalis. And for listeners that have not brushed up on their Latin, 
That means basically ministering to the whole person. And so when a, when a Jesuit priest enters into a, a sort of ministerial relationship with someone, they're trying to find a way to bring that whole person into the relationship, both their whole person, but also to draw out the wholeness of the person who's on the other side of that relationship. And so as I'm using this idea from this sort of Jesuit spirituality of cura personalis, is that in any way grounding out with what you have encountered with these priests who are saying that they really want to bring their whole selves to that moment, and that means bringing their whole identity to this moment? Or would you say it in a different way? It sounds like it. But while I work for the Jesuits, I am not an expert by any means in Jesuit spirituality. So I'm going to yield that to you (laughs) if you think it encapsulates what's going on here. But I will say that there's a long profile in the book of a then young Jesuit named Father William Harp Nichols. And I remember interviewing him and asking why he was called HIV and AIDS ministry. And Father Bill told me that he had come out fairly young. People always assumed he was gay anyway, so he decided to just own it and actually came out in a letter to the editor to the New York Times in the 1970s. He was writing a letter explaining why he thought sexual orientation was an important attribute of a person's being. It's not something that you can ignore just because they're a priest. And then in the 1980s, as he was doing HIV and AIDS ministry, he said that he assumed most people would think he was gay anyway, because most people who were in that space doing HIV and AIDS ministry were gay. And he just went with that and didn't correct people when they were spreading gossip about him. But he did tell me that because the gay community was particularly hard hit early in the crisis in the 1980s and 90s, the vast majority of new HIV and AIDS cases were among gay men. He said that he understood it had to be gay people who responded, that there was something about the knit community that made it impossible for allies, even well-meaning allies, to really grasp or understand what was happening. So he knew that he wanted to help. He knew that it had to be a gay person, is the way he put it. And since he was gay, he thought it made sense to come out, stand in solidarity with his community and explain why he felt called to help. So there is this sense that it does a person being honest about who they truly are in order for them to be successful at whatever tasks they're undertaking. It's interesting. You used the word gossip a moment ago, and you also uh, you used it in the context of they wouldn't have power over Father Bill McNichols if he was able to just be honest about who he was. And what has always struck me about gossip is if you read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, gossip is identified as being a behavior that is intrinsically disordered, which is language that is also used about the, the gay identity, homosexuality, homosexual acts. And so I'm interested in this notion of being able to maneuver and and own power. I don't even quite know how to ask this. Like, we don't often think about priests as being powerful. We think about them as being meek and shepherds and servants. And so I'd like to think with you for a moment about what it means to have or to exercise a certain type of public power around issues like pandemics, epidemics, illnesses, things like AIDS. What does it mean to bring power into this discussion? I think for people, it's all well, I'm in my 30s and I was learning this history for the first time. And I grew up really in a church that was reeling from revelations of clergy sexual abuse. So the public standing of the Catholic Church that I know is greatly diminished from what it was during the height of its power more in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And I think it's hard to imagine just how much uh, political power a archbishop of a major city held back then. So I'm thinking of Cardinal John O'Connor in New York or Cardinal Joseph Bernadine here in Chicago, 
if they wanted to make a statement about oppressing moral issues, journalists would come and cover what they had to say. Uh, Cardinal O'Connor was a regular in the city's tabloids. He appeared on radio talk shows. He could summon a press conference after mass and get the city's big, powerful reporters to show up and take notes about what he was saying. And that extended from a range of issues. I mean, Cardinal O'Connor in New York was known for talking about the rights of workers. He was a strong ally in the fight against anti-Semitism. He was someone who cared about the rights of immigrants, wanted to make sure that there was adequate housing and health care. He used his political power for things that I think we would associate with social justice, gospel-oriented Christians. At the same time, he was a traditionalist, and he was someone who was placed in his role by Pope John Paul II because he knew that on social issues, Cardinal O'Connor was a conservative. And on things like abortion, Cardinal O'Connor would weigh in. And then when it came to the gay rights movement and HIV and AIDS, he also used his political power to shape the debate. And that's where I think he got into some trouble because once he started trying to undermine public health campaigns, he would go on the record saying that he did not approve of the teaching of safe sex, that he, he, he even believed that condoms were ineffective in fighting the spread of HIV, going against the advice of public health authorities. That's when activists started saying, well, who is this person who has no medical training, no understanding of the science behind HIV to use his position to fight against civil rights bills, fight against public health campaigns? And they really wanted to take him on. And that's what led to massive protests from gay activist groups like ACT UP in New York. And there was this sense that why does this person have so much political power? He represents a big constituency of New York for sure, but he's not an elected person. Why is he able to call the president or the mayor and impact public policy? At one point, he's placed on the White House's AIDS commission by President Reagan. And there was this sense that his power was not being used to protect the marginalized, but to pressure society to conform to the moral teachings of the church, even if they went against public health campaigns that were aimed at saving the lives of a marginalized group. So I think there was this grapple between who has power in cities like New York and Chicago and who should. And that's why we saw such tension between gay activist groups and the Catholic hierarchy. I think that's something that may surprise readers of your book, Hidden Mercy. You mentioned Cardinal O'Connor and Cardinal Bernadin. I think that sometimes from the outside, people imagine that the Catholic Church really is a monolithic hierarchy and that it just speaks with one moral voice. But what you bring out is the fact that O'Connor and Bernadin were actually very much against one another. I, I don't quite know the right language to use, but they were not adversarial, but they were moving in different directions on the question of AIDS. And so Cardinal Bernadin was very uh, much behind a document that came out from the, the United States Council of Catholic Bishops the, called the Many Faces of AIDS. O'Connor pushed back against that document with the backing of the Vatican, and there was a real kind of, there was a battle over which voice was going to win out in terms of public Catholicism. I'd love for you to tell my listeners a little bit more about that kind of aspect of power, the way that bishop against bishop or bishop among bishops navigates and maneuvers. We talked a little bit earlier about how the Plague podcast was able to tell some really powerful stories. But in the book, In Hidden Mercy, I was able to get into some of the more nuanced aspects of this time in history. And this is a great example of that nuance that we didn't really get into too much in the podcast, but in the book, there was more space to. Uh, I would say that 
among the U.S. hierarchy in the 1980s and 90s, there was more or less general agreement on all the important things. So teachings of the church, theological positions of the church, even social positions of the church. I think what we were seeing happening, though, was in the 1960s and 70s, there was a trend among bishops to be more involved in what we might say are social justice issues. So nuclear war, the economy, rights of immigrants. And there was a strong block of what we might describe as politically moderate to maybe even some politically liberal bishops who had formed a cohesive block and were able to use the what was then called the National Conference of Catholic Bishops to advance some political positions that were seen as slightly more progressive. That began to change with the ascension of Pope John Paul II in the 1970s and 80s as he began to appoint more bishops who were politically conservative, perhaps, who focused on what we might call life issues like abortion, uh, human sexuality. And we saw in the 1980s, I think, the acceleration of this more conservative pro-life group of bishops that was not on board with some of the more progressive social justice issues being championed by this more moderate. In the, in the book, I'm able to show that Cardinal O'Connor represented this new kind of bishop and Cardinal Bernadine was representing the old block. And when it came to HIV and AIDS, there was a real public clash about what role do Catholics have in this crisis? Cardinal Bernadine wanted Catholics to be partnering with organizations, even if they had different views about the use of condoms, for example, whereas Cardinal O'Connor seemed to say, yes, we should help, but we must remain true to our moral convictions. And that played out in a very public way, which was unusual at the time for Catholic bishops. Well, and that leads to another aspect that really comes out in your book, Hidden Mercy, and that is, for want of a better word, quasi-Catholic organizations. And in particular, and you talked about the fight over condom usage around whether or not the church would say that this was a, a, a licit activity, something that people could do to save lives. There was an organization that was not part of the church, and yet it had the name Catholic in it. I believe it was called the Catholic League. It had a longer name, but that's really the name that rang out to me. But it put up advertisement all over the New York subway system, basically saying condoms don't work and might even hurt you or kill you. And I'd, I'd love to hear about the effect of these quasi-Catholic organizations and if or how uh, bishops like Cardinal O'Connor or Cardinal Bernadine responded to this kind of quasi-Catholic uprising to try and get messages out that may have been counterfactual or even, even harmful. I wasn't able to dig in too deeply to the relationship between groups like the Catholic League and the hierarchy, but there was this uh, sense that there were a number of organizations that were claiming to represent different factions of Catholics. So the Catholic League tended to focus on anti-Catholic discrimination, but ultimately became a more conservative organization that fought against what they perceived as anti-Catholic bias in the media. And those ads that you mentioned, casting doubt on the effectiveness of condoms, I think were really aimed at... Uh, what we might today call trolling. Uh, I think they were trolling sort of the public health consensus that condoms were effective and also critics of the church who were angry at people like Cardinal O'Connor. Now, it's not funny, of course, because those messages like that did have the potential to help further the spread of HIV and cost more lives. So it, it may have been a trolling message, but it was not one without consequences. At the same time, you had groups like Dignity, which were fighting for the rights of gay Catholics in the church that 
were not officially part of the church. They said that they represented Catholics, but they also had sometimes difficult relationships with bishops, with the institutional church. So there was this sense that there was the hierarchical fighting or debating about these issues. At the same time, you had groups of lay Catholics who were engaged in the same sort of back and forth. And it's, I'm about to ask you a complex question, and it's one that you definitely deal with in the podcast Plague, and you also deal with it in your book Hidden Mercy. But we've talked about quasi-Catholic organizations and the Catholic hierarchy, but I'm interested if you could tell my listeners a little bit about the response of Catholic healthcare workers, nurses and physicians, either who identified as Catholic themselves or who worked in Catholic hospitals. Were they all falling in line with the teaching of the church, or was there a way where they kept the letter of the law but not the spirit of it? This, I think, is the most fascinating part of Catholics who were really on the ground, whether it was doing ministry, pastoral care, visiting the sick, or in the instance of your question, working in Catholic hospitals. And we were talking about this debate about how Catholics were to approach the issue of condoms. And I went into the stories about how bishops were going back and forth, and it was this robust debate. The media was covering it. The New York Times was all over it. But I was really curious, how did this play out on the ground? So I asked a number of people who worked in Catholic hospitals, what did they make of this public debate? They had been working in the hospital and this all happening. And almost all of them told me they had no idea what I was talking about. Now, these people were living this out. So if it really had been as intense as it was being portrayed by bishops, by Catholic organizations, by the media, you would think that it would have had an impact on Catholic doctors and nurses. But the reality was, I think that they were just so overwhelmed by the suffering and the sickness and the death that they were encountering day after day for years in Catholic hospitals that sort of the bickering of bishops didn't make its way down there, didn't make its way to the hospitals in any meaningful way. And they certainly knew that they were prohibited from handing out condoms to patients in the hospitals, but many of them got around that by either doing it discreetly or by setting up situations where patients could go to a nearby pharmacy and get condoms for free. There was this sense that They knew what they had to do, and part of that was giving people the ability to protect themselves as best they could from contracting HIV, and they did it anyway. So there was this reality on the ground versus, I think, the more philosophical, theological debates taking place among bishops. And ultimately, we saw the success of many Catholic hospitals. I think they were able to provide the kind of care that was needed at the time. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Michael O'Loughlin. He's an award-winning journalist and national correspondent for America Media. He's the host of the podcast Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. Longtime listeners will recall that we spoke with O'Loughlin about his podcast in January of 2020. Prior to joining America Magazine, O'Loughlin was a national reporter for the Boston Globe, and he's written for The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Foreign Policy, The National Catholic Reporter, and The Advocate. Today we're talking about his recent book, Hidden Mercy, AIDS, Catholics, and the Untold Stories of Compassion in the Face of Fear. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Michael O'Loughlin. He's an award-winning journalist and the national correspondent for America Media. He's the host of the podcast, Plague, 
Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. Listeners will recall that we spoke with O'Loughlin about that podcast back in January of 2020. Prior to joining America Magazine, O'Loughlin was a national reporter for the Boston Globe, and he's written for The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Foreign Policy, The National Catholic Reporter, and The Advocate. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Hidden Mercy, AIDS, Catholics, and the Untold Stories of Compassion in the Face of Fear. Well, one of the things that sort of stopped me short when I was reading your book, Hidden Mercy, was the chapter on Dorothy Day. I will admit, as a kind of left-leaning Catholic, that I, I really do idolize Dorothy Day as a champion of the kind of Catholic that I think that I would want to be with regard to caring for the poor and standing for social justice and for economic justice. I was really shocked and surprised and dumbfounded to discover that while she was so progressive on all those things that I hold dear, she was silent or even ambivalent or antagonistic towards the question of LGBTQ persons and towards the question of AIDS. And I wonder if you could talk to my listeners a little bit about that chapter and and what you learned about Dorothy Day. I was right there with you where I had this idea of Dorothy Day in my mind. I admit I didn't know too much about her. I knew that she had started the Catholic Worker newspaper, uh, which was a newspaper for the working classes in New York. It wanted to remind people that the Catholic Church had a pro-worker bent, even if it wasn't always self-evident. She started Houses of Hospitality through the Catholic Worker movement that provided food and lodging for the very poor in New York and then around the country. She's associated with like you said, the social justice aspects of the church that appeal to many progressive Catholics today. And I knew some of that history, but I really wanted to learn more. And when I started to read about Catholic worker houses that had been founded specifically for people with HIV and AIDS, I decided to explore how that came to be. What, what was it about this woman who had been born in the late 19th century How was she able to inspire people decades and decades later to care for people with HIV and AIDS? And it ended up being a very complex story. I think I write in the book that everything around the Catholic Church's response to HIV and AIDS is more complicated than I first thought, and this was no different. I was able to visit a couple Catholic worker houses, and I asked, what what was Dorothy's view on this? I asked people who knew her, who had worked with her in New York. And like you alluded to, it was pretty complicated. When Dorothy converted, she embraced the church in its totality, which meant the concern for the poor and immigrants like we talked about. But also for her, that meant totally embracing the church's view on morality and human sexuality. And she was very uncomfortable with the idea of homosexuality, especially later in her life in the 70s as the gay rights movement was advancing. She was old by then, and she was uncomfortable with this aspect. And I would encourage your listeners, well, there's certainly a great chapter in Hidden Mercy about the Catholic worker. There's also a bonus uh, episode of Plague that goes into some of these stories more deeply. But ultimately, she just didn't want to talk about this issue. She thought that, well, she could understand the need to be kind to everyone. When it came to homosexuality, she thought it was better off just not talked about. And that created this sort of don't ask, don't tell policy in the Catholic worker movement, which created sort of a closet, which some people said was very harmful psychologically and spiritually. So there is this paradox of a woman who held somewhat antagonistic views toward homosexuality, nonetheless inspired a large number of 
gay and lesbian volunteers to create houses for people with AIDS. And I think it's an interesting phenomenon for Catholics who do hold Dorothy in high view to grapple with what, what does this mean? Another character in your book, Hidden Mercy, is Dr. Anthony Fauci. And I don't know what your thinking and production process was when you were working on the podcast Plague, which was released right around the beginning of 2020. But I can't imagine that you could have known or even suspected that just a few months after you had released this podcast in early 2020, as we got into March and April, that Anthony Fauci would become once again a national figure for a second epidemic and pandemic a second plague, if you will. And I would love to hear about how the character of Anthony Fauci changed for you between the podcast Plague and the writing of the book Hidden Mercy. So I, I will concede that, like I said, in Plague, we were able to capture a lot of stories. Then Hidden Mercy, I expand on them. I interviewed Dr. Anthony Fauci after the start of the COVID pandemic, and I was able to ask him what, about his experience during HIV and AIDS. So I, I didn't have the chance to interview him before COVID, but I did after. And I knew that he had been educated in Jesuit schools, that he was raised Catholic, that he was also on the front lines of the HIV and AIDS crisis. And I was curious how his faith, which taught one thing, squared with his public credentials, which taught something that church leaders opposed. And in the book, I get into how he grappled with that and how he was ultimately quite disappointed in Catholic leaders because they were fighting against public health measures. In terms of how I viewed him, I, I had known who he was. I think anyone who was working in the HIV and AIDS space, whether it was in person in the 80s and 90s or researching it now, he was a pivotal figure. I will say, I think seeing how he's been such a central figure in the COVID pandemic helps me appreciate more the, the role that public health figures like him would have played during the HIV and AIDS crisis, whereas before the current pandemic, it was more of a hypothetical to me. But now I can see why there was such pressure from activists on all sides of the debate to influence how public health figures are talking about a crisis. And that raises a follow-on question, because if you I lived through that period in the 1980s, but also I have watched narratives about it, like Randy Schultz and the band played on and those sorts of ways of telling the history of that time. And one thing that happened was there was a real kind of question around public health messaging. And how do we get these communities that had been fighting to become more visible to suddenly withdraw from a very kind of embracing attitude towards their sexuality and their sexual practices? How did they get them to begin to practice safe sex? And I've been thinking about that a lot as I've watched the kind of debates around, say, public health messaging now, mask wearing and things like that, and the kind of backlash against that. And I'm wondering if you've thought about some of those parallels and whether they are worth talking about or whether you think that it's kind of an apples and oranges question. So I'd be very interested in your thoughts about the ways in which public health messaging was different or the same or, or similar then and now. I've been a little hesitant to compare them too much just because there are such unique aspects to both public health crises. So with HIV and AIDS, researchers were pretty quick to discover how it was transmitted and that it was not airborne, that it was actually quite difficult to pass on without intimate contact. And as a result, I think we were able to see a lot of 
people establish ministries and organizations that helped people that because they could visit safely, they could assist with things like groceries and shopping, cleaning in a safe way. Whereas with COVID, especially in the early days, it was quite clear that it was very easily spread. The best thing we could do to help was to stay home and not congregate. And that created, I think, a situation where a lot of people wanted to help, but you couldn't because you were told it was not safe. So in many ways, that's just one example of how different the crises are. I will say one thing that has stuck out to me, we've been talking a little bit about the efforts by some conservatives in the Catholic Church during HIV and AIDS to really fight against public health measures because they saw the crisis through a lens of morality rather than medicine. And I think, unfortunately, there's some strain in the church that is continuing that today through COVID, whether it was spreading misinformation about vaccines, such as are they morally licit? Were they tested using fetal stem cells, things like that, which simply wasn't the case. The Vatican, Pope Francis has encouraged vaccines, but there's some strain in the church today that I think is still fighting against public health measures. I can't quite put my finger on why, uh, but it does seem to be a thread that we can see back during HIV and AIDS that's continued into today's crisis. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Michael O'Loughlin. He's an award-winning journalist and the national correspondent for America Media. He's the host of the podcast Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. Today we're talking about his recent book, Hidden Mercy, AIDS, Catholics, and the Untold Stories of Compassion in the Face of Fear. Well, both in your podcast, Plague, and in your book, Hidden Mercy, you draw out a moment in 1986 where an organization called Dignity is thrown out of the church. Nationwide, they are told that they have to leave. They can no longer be in Catholic spaces. And this was an organization that, again, was designed to be a a meeting point for visibility and for solidarity for LGBTQ people. And so that was a watershed moment of being thrown out of the church. And you talk about several characters, both in the podcast and in your book, who were decimated by this activity. So that's one poll of the question that I want to ask, because then in your book, Hidden Mercy, this didn't come out to my recollection in the podcast, but it did come out in the book. You had an experience visiting that parish in Boys Town that is near where you live. And you were there and the priest said, well, next week we're going to have the blessing of marriage. And I want to let you know that I mean all marriages, whether you're heterosexual or homosexual, whatever kind of marriage you're in, you stand up and I will bless you. And I want to ask you about the contrast there between 1986 and dignity being thrown out of the church and that moment when you heard a priest from the pulpit say, I will recognize what you and your husband have. I'd love to hear more about that. Sure. And just, I mean, to be clear, this is not just because I wouldn't want anyone to get in trouble. This was not a priest offering to do any sort of official wedding for a same-sex couple. It was more of a, a thing that happens in churches in this instance around Valentine's Day, where a priest might give a general blessing to married couples. So it's nothing like rising to the level of a marriage. It's more of a kind of general prayer for couples. Nonetheless, it was quite powerful to hear a priest invite gay couples to stand uh, and participate in, in this blessing. And it's just one example of what I have encountered firsthand in my own life and then also have talked to many other LGBT Catholics. The really profoundly moving pastoral care provided to the LGBT community from priests and sisters and even some lay Catholics 
who encounter people on a human level and as a result understand, I think we were talking earlier about what it means to be a, a, a person and they encounter the totality of an individual and respond with grace and cite the gospel for why they act this way versus what can be very hurtful public comments from institutional leaders who feel compelled to uphold traditional church teaching, even as society uh, increasingly sees those views as intolerant. So comparing it to 1986, when you had the church really cracking down on groups like Dignity, I know at the same time, there were priests doing amazing pastoral work with the gay and lesbian community back in the 1980s. I've heard stories of priests blessing same-sex couples back then who were providing pastoral care to gay men as their partners lay dying in hospitals. So in some ways, I think it's the same dynamic that's been playing out for decades and decades that in private, there is this willingness, I think, to engage with the gay and lesbian community. But in public, the institution feels that it has to continue preaching its traditional beliefs. And that tension, I think, creates a lot of hurt and pain for LGBT Catholics and their families because there does seem to be this sense that we're not fully welcome, even if we are able to find private moments where we do feel welcome. I appreciate very much your gentle correction of my description of that moment. And I I think that speaks to some of the politics and power dynamics that are here to say a recognition, but not going to the level of a certain type of sacramental activity, those are still the kind of dividing lines that we have to have in this conversation in order to not offend or to draw the ire of some that are, are in power in the church. And I, I very much appreciate that moment. And I think that that it speaks as much to my listeners about the, the ways in which these are still very delicate questions and conversations that must be had. And and with that, I, as we're moving towards the end of the conversation, I want to ask you about two things that happen towards the end of your book, Hidden Mercy. One is you speak very personally and you say, I, and, and you've actually talked about it in this conversation, that you used to think a lot about how you covered stories and what kind of stories you covered because you didn't want to leave a kind of breadcrumb trail, that's my phrase, not yours, but towards your sexual identity. And you say at the end of your book, Hidden Mercy, that you have now, as a result of this reporting, really come in into a different way of understanding your relationship to your reporting and your relationship as a public persona, as a reporter. If you'd be willing to talk a little bit about that with my listeners, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, so early on, uh, I started reporting full-time back in uh, 2014. I had done some freelancing for a number of years before that. And it was really the debate over same-sex marriage and how what religious figures were thinking and how they were influencing the conversation. When I started reporting quite regularly on these issues. And like you say, I was afraid of what readers would think. Why was I writing about this so much? I was writing essays about LGBT Catholics, but not identifying myself as a gay Catholic. And part of that was I just wasn't ready to be out yet. And over time, I published a couple of stories where it became more or less clear that I was gay and that I'm Catholic. And I was trying to figure out how to make this work. And I think for me, the most freeing part of that was there was very little negative reaction. I actually received a number of messages with the publication of each story from other LGBT Catholics or family members who said that they were really appreciative to have my voice in the conversation. 
that they appreciated the nuance I could bring to stories like this and being able to elevate certain voices. And over time, those positive affirmations built up and I realized I didn't have anything to fear and I could be more uh, myself in reporting these stories. And with Hidden Mercy and with Plague, what I've been trying to do is imagine in some ways what it would have been like to be a reporter back then and capture some of these stories in order to help others feel more empowered, that maybe they have role models or individuals they can look up to from history because so often LGBT history is not passed on. It's not passed on in schools, usually not in homes, definitely not in churches. And what I want to do is be able to connect people who don't remember this time firsthand to individuals who lived and worked through that time and say, you're not alone, that people have done this before, that they've walked down this path before. Because for me, it felt so new. But in reality, it's just because I was denied this history that I've fail to understand that others have lived this uh, before. So I'm hopeful that with Hidden Mercy that other people will be able to have the same sense of affirmation that I've experienced uh, these past few years. And that desire for connection and for having readers and people experiencing these stories to not feel alone, that really rings out as we get towards the end of the book. But now to ask you my final question, you've now told this story one way as a kind of oral history through the podcast Plague. And now it exists as a kind of uh, official document, this book. And books have a certain type of, of cachet in our culture. When it comes into a book, it becomes more kind of solid history. What do you hope next for these stories? How will they continue to evolve? And will you continue to work on this reporting? Or do you feel like now with the publication of Hidden Mercy that this chapter of the storytelling is largely stopped? Like, how do you imagine the future for these stories? Yeah, I have a few thoughts about that. Uh, one is I'm very clear in the book that I'm not a trained historian, uh, that this is not a comprehensive history of this time, that there are so many stories I've uncovered that simply didn't make it into the book for a variety of reasons. And who knows how many more are out there. And I'm really heartened as I uh, begin a book tour this month in January when we're speaking that I'll be able to meet more people to help shed light on stories that didn't make it into the book, but through our conversations, I can introduce others to that I can simply listen to stories that I hadn't heard before. So I, I do hope that this is really the start of a conversation as we go forward in years, that there's more of an effort to collect these stories before it's too late. I would love to see a more scholarly look at this time. I approach this as a journalist. I think that there is room for historians to look more critically at this time, to collect some more of these stories, to examine how the church used its resources or how it didn't use its resources. As archives begin to open up, we can look at how the official church responded. And ultimately, I do hope that the conversation continues. I've been so impressed with the number of people who have reached out after reading Hidden Mercy or listening to Plague and saying that they haven't had a chance to share these stories before. And I hope that this helps create a space where people realize and feel like we want to hear what they experienced at that time. Well, Michael O'Loughlin, I will say I was so moved when I listened to your podcast, Plague, a couple of years ago. And I found myself going deeper with your book, Hidden Mercy, exactly as you said. It was a perfect way of progressing deeper into these stories, to get a taste from the people themselves, to hear it in their own words, and then to go deeper in the reading. 
And like you, I hope that these stories continue to be told and told not only by you, but by historians. But you have, you've made the first step. And I'm so grateful that you took the time and that you made the journey yourself in terms of your own identity and your own sort of complex relationship to this material, that you took the time to really unearth and tell these stories. And I'm especially glad that you took the time to talk with us about it on the show today. Thanks, David. And thanks for your continued interest, both with Plague and now with Hidden Mercy. I appreciate it. We've been speaking today with Michael O'Loughlin. He's an award-winning journalist and the national correspondent for America Media. He's the host of the podcast Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. If listeners want to go back and hear our conversation about that podcast, you can find it in early January 2020, The Complex History of AIDS and the Catholic Church. He has written for the Boston Globe, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Foreign Policy, and National Catholic Reporter, as well as The Advocate. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, Hidden Mercy, AIDS, Catholics, and the Untold Stories of Compassion in the Face of Fear. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSeenRadio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's Facebook.com slash ThingsNotSeenRadio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.